This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of the magazine, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here. On this program, as you may recall, we have poets read a poem from the magazine archive. They read it and we discuss it, and then we ask her or him to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine, and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Nick Laird, my fellow Northern Irishman whose second collection, On Purpose, was awarded the Somerset Mom Award. Welcome, Nick Laird. Hi, Paul. And Now, the poem you've chosen to read today, I'm delighted to see, is one of the great poems of the last hundred years, I suppose. It's by Elizabeth Bishop, and it's The Moose. Now, I'm sure there are many reasons why The Moose might have come trotting down the road towards you. Yeah, as you say, it's definitely one of the best poems, in in my opinion, of the last hundred years. I knew that Bishop had a special relationship with The New Yorker, so when it came to looking in the archives, I wanted to go sort of further back, and The the Moose was an obvious choice. I was surprised it hadn't been picked before. I'd forgotten how long it is. Now I look at it, I see it goes on for quite a while, but it's such a wonderful... It's got a kind of loose control all the way through it, um, which Bishop always has. So it seems sort of uh, prosy at times and chatty, and yet has this sort of tremendous iron control all the way through it. Well, it's it rhymes. When she wants to. Yes, it sort of comes in and out a little yeah. bit. You know, the first stanza, we've got the T, the C, we've got the tides, the rides. Uh, the second, we've retreats and meets, foam and home. There is an establishing, certainly, of a a rhyme scheme and as she comes back. But very unobtrusive because the rhymes are usually held quite far apart and only idiomatic. Nothing ever, you know, pokes its head above the parapet in terms of rhymes. What is it that makes this such a great poem, would you say? It's very cinematic, I suppose one could say. And it sort of moves around. It feels very personal, and yet she she holds everything at arm's length, which Bishop often does. So even in the way you're not sure when she comes into the poem, when is the person getting on the bus who speaks the poem? And then it sort of moves into these g- generic ideas about heritage and uh, grandparents and family and stuff. And then these lovely, tiny, sort of apprehendable details like the 
the sweet peas cling to the wet white string and the whitewashed fence. So, you know, it's like Google Earth, I suppose. We're zooming in and then we're zooming back out again. So it's very hard to resist, I think. And then this wonderful um, bit at the end where the moose comes in. People say it's a pun on the, the muse. I don't know about that. But the, the moose comes in, so you have this human world very, very common in bishop poems and, and, and in lots of great poetry, but this human world rubbing up against this other world, this um, this otherness, which comes to be an incredibly exciting, uh, moving little moment. You know, I, I'm not sure if I subscribe to this idea of the moose being the muse. No, I don't either, really. I mean, I find it... <laughs> I actually think... Um, I mean, I'm open to all sorts of things, as, as you know, but... I do. Uh, the fact is that I find that actually a little bit cheapening in some way. I yeah. don't need this to be the muse. This is a moose. It's not the muse. Well, I regret mentioning it. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's no, no. I'm glad you mentioned it because one of the, our problems with poetry, of course, and we've discussed this a number of times, is that we desperately want to believe that it's not about what it seems to be about. It can't possibly be just about a moose. It yeah. needs to be about something else. We are so desperate to believe that that we will we will grasp at anything at all. It's definitely about the moose. But I, <laughs> but I suppose the interesting thing is what the moose brings with it. And Bishop isn't scared to use this word, otherworldly. You know, when the, the moose looks the bus over, we all feel this sweet sensation of joy. Bishop asks why. And the answer is because we're seeing this other world up close for once. So a little glimpse into something else. Have you ever been up close any chance to a moose? <laughs> to a moose? Not to a moose. I mean, I've seen deer, obviously, up close in various places in Ireland, but I've never, I've never seen the moose. What about you? I have, and uh, I've spent a lot of time up in Vermont, and in fact, I've there was a point at which uh, one could go down at dusk of an evening and more or less park beside a moose really? and, and watch them. And they're quite overwhelming, actually. Right. They're huge. And that may be actually one of the reasons why this poem is so long. It Somehow it, it needs to be to yeah. sort of take it all in. It does that thing that Bishop talks about in another poem. She talks about driving to the interior. Mm-hmm. And in this poem, it's, it's so gentle, that way of moving inwards all the way to this incident. I think that's another reason it's great. It sets up this, what's the poem of hers? With the fish? It's just called The Fish. The Fish, the fish is out of, held out of water. And you have this sort of breathless narrative because the fish is being held out of water. So that this is a different way. We have this whole bus journey. So she sets up these narratives within the poems which automatically establish a kind of narrative for it. This is a journey. So the poem starts and we move all the way through it. And then this thing happens. So so she does this drive into the interior. She she has a lot of, we would say in cinematic terms, I suppose, she has a lot of establishing shots um, beforehand. But she her, her control of language is just magic. Let's hear The Moose by Elizabeth Bishop. And it's read here by Nick Lurd. The Moose. From narrow provinces of fish and bread and tea, Home of the long tides where the bay leaves the sea twice a day and takes the herring's long rides. Where if the river enters or retreats and a wall of brown foam depends on if it meets the bay coming in, the bay not at home, where, silted red, sometimes the sun sets facing a red sea and others veins the flats lavender, rich mud and burning rivulets on red gravelly roads, down rows of sugar maples, past clapboard farmhouses and neat clapboard churches, bleached, ridged as clam shells, past twin silver birches, 
Through late afternoon a bus journeys west, the windshield flashing pink, pink glancing off of metal, brushing the dented flank of blue beat-up enamel, down hollows, uprises, and waits, patient, while a lone traveller gives kisses and embraces to seven relatives and a collie supervisors. Goodbye to the elms, to the farm, to the dog. The bus starts, the light grows richer, the fog, shifting, salty, thin, comes closing in. Its cold, round crystals form and slide and settle in the white hen's feathers, in grey glazed cabbages, on the cabbage roses and lupins like apostles. The sweet peas cling to the wet white string on the whitewashed fences. Bumblebees creep inside the foxgloves and evening commences. One stop at Bass River, then the economies lower, middle, upper. Five islands, five houses, where a woman shakes a tablecloth out after supper. A pale flickering, gone. The tantrama marshes and the smell of salt hay. An iron bridge trembles and a loose plank rattles but doesn't give way. On the left, a red light swims through the dark. A ship's port lantern. Two rubber boots show, illuminated, solemn. A dog gives one bark. A woman climbs in with two market bags, brisk, freckled, elderly. A grand night. Yes, sir, all the way to Boston. She regards us amicably. Moonlight as we enter the New Brunswick woods, hairy, scratchy, splintery. Moonlight and mist caught in them like lamb's wool on bushes in a pasture. The passengers lie back, snores, some long sighs. A dreamy divagation begins in the night, a gentle, auditory, slow hallucination. In the creakings and noises, an old conversation not concerning us, but recognisable somewhere back in the bus. Grandparents' voices uninterruptedly talking in eternity. Names being mentioned. Things cleared up finally, what he said, what she said, who got pensioned. Deaths, deaths and sicknesses. The year he remarried, the year something happened. She died in childbirth. That was the son lost when the schooner foundered. He took to drink, yes. She went to the bad when Amos began to pray even in the store and finally the family had to put him away, yes. That peculiar affirmative, yes. A sharp, indrawn breath, half groan, half acceptance that means life's like that, we know it, also death talking the way they talked in the old feather bed, peacefully, on and on, dim lamplight in the hall, down in the kitchen the dog tucked in her shawl. Now it's all right now, even to fall asleep, just as on all those nights. Suddenly the bus driver stops with a jolt, turns off his lights. A moose has come out of the impenetrable wood and stands there, looms, rather, in the middle of the road. It approaches, it sniffs at the bus's hot hood, towering, antlerless, high as a church, homely as a house or safe as houses. A man's voice assures us, 
perfectly harmless. Some of the passengers exclaim in whispers, childishly, softly, sure are big creatures, it's awful plain. Look, it's a she. Taking her time, she looks the bus over, grand, otherworldly. Why, why do we feel, we all feel, this sweet sensation of joy? Curious creatures, says our quiet driver, rolling his R's. Look at that, would you? Then he shifts gears for a moment longer by craning backward. The moose can be seen on the moonlit macadam. Then there's a dim smell of moose, an acrid smell of gasoline. What a truly amazing poem. It's great, isn't it? One of the things that strikes me listening to your wonderful reading of it there is that it, the, the point of view of the speaker seems to change a little bit here mm. and there. For example, at the very end there, the moose can be seen on the moonlit macadam. Then there's a dim smell of moose, an acrid smell of gasoline. And it's hard to know just uh, from which perspective we're sensing right. that. I mean, it's unlikely, I'd say, that one could smell the moose from yeah. within the bus. And it's almost as if we found ourselves outside right, left the bus. Behind, yeah. And, you know, th that might be perceived in some instances as a failure, actually, of verifiability. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not sure if it is exactly that. I think it is almost as if we're back out there with the moose. Could that be right? I know what you mean about that. I, it seems to be because it's at the very end of the poem and it's kind of like, uh, you know, obviously in the last few lines, this, this happens, this sort of shift. It seems to be part and parcel of the other shifts that are all in it. It moves around all the time in the bus, out of the bus, high up looking down at the bus, you know, from the narrow provinces of fish and bread and tea. Mm -hmm. So it seems part and parcel of that. But you're right. I don't think you can smell the moose probably from inside the bus, although maybe... <laughs> Just reading through it again there, some little details like she regards us amicably. This amicable regard, which you always feel in Bishop, that's, that's what it is. It's a, it, it, it's a very perspicacious regard. There's something being looked at very closely, but finally amicable, awful but cheerful, as she says at the end of one of the poems. And this detail like the bus's hot hood, hot hood is very good. Uh, you know, moving into another sense, the actual touch rather than the... The looking at the hood, and this, and then the things like a man's voice assures us it's the man's voice, of course, in Bishop. And then it's a she, it's the she. moose is a she. Yeah. So there's a whole kind of there's a gender drama being played out right. too. Yeah. For example, it does sound very much as if the moose is checking if the hot hood might belong to another moose. Yeah, I think that's true. It just it's, it seems to me very. There's a lot to this poem. It goes deep in all sort of interesting different directions. Like this is a journey west with all the things that come into the, the journey west, uh, uh, which we all must go at some point in our lives. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And at the same point, it seems like it could just be an, just a journey that someone has gone on. So uh, resonance all the way through it. I love those details like when Amos began to pray, even in the store, the family had to put him away and stuff. So. The word way and away comes up again and again in this thing, and it seems like this is the poem is about different ways of doing stuff.
It's extraordinary how just how much of uh, society, of interaction, of life, death, the family sagas is included in this, I mean, longer poem, but in a strange way, it seems to include much more than one would decently expect a poem with the, even this length to include. Right. Everything is there. Right. It seems to just sort of cover every uh, history, geography. It covers every topic in the syllabus. You know, one of the things I find about uh, Bishop is that she's a poet from whom everyone may learn. I say that because there are so many poets, if you think of someone like T.S. Eliot or Yeats, uh, or indeed even Marianne Moore, uh, her great, Bishop's great fellow poet. Yeah. You know, if you go near Marion Moore, you're in trouble. If mm-hmm. you go near Eliot as a poet, you're in trouble. If you go near Yeats, you're almost certainly in trouble because yeah. one's only likely to render second or third or fifth rate versions of these poets. Right. However, Bishop is a poet from whom many, I think, may learn. Is she someone that you might, yourself might have thought of as a model? Well, definitely thought of as a model. I think it's, you're right, but let's look at why that might be. So, so whenever it comes to Eliot or Yeats, there's a kind of resting of the subject matter into verse. There's a kind of forcing of dominance on the subject matter. They, but Bishop comes at it, she's much more interested in the subject matter, much more interested in looking closely at it. The verse is sort of a handmaiden to the subject matter in some way. So this idea of looking closely... You, obviously, you get it in Eliot and Yeats and stuff as well, but there's such a, maybe could we say it's a male impulse to try and rest it into place, to dominate it. You never feel that in Bishop. She, she's coming, she's standing at the side, she's looking closely and she's thinking hard. She's thinking hard and she revises on the spot. She's constantly questioning. Right. Yes. She's constantly saying, well, wait a minute, uh, in the fish's mouth there were not four right. lines hanging out. I think it, it must have been five. Homely as a house or safe as houses, the year something happened. She's not scared not to know, whereas you would never find that in Elliot or Yeats. The, the idea of admitting some kind of lacuna wouldn't happen in Elliot or Yeats. So there is that, but there's also the fact that her her, her voice is very, in a strange way, and it's perhaps um, not inappropriate to say it uh, in the context of this poem, which is about a moose on a road, her voice is kind of middle of the road. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It's very matter-of-fact, uh-huh. very casual. The language of men and women speaking to men and women. And I think that's one of the reasons why we may all learn from her. She has no stylistic tics, no. except perhaps that urge to correct herself. And yet, when it comes to like thinking about maybe the best Sestina this century the best villanelle this century. You know, the Hupum Sistina about the girl and the grandmother and the tea kettle, there's definitely, an, you know, one of them, and the, the same with one art or other stuff. She definitely has... But you're right, there's no... You couldn't, you'd be hard-pressed to read a poem and say this is definitely Bishop, though there would be suggestions here and there. But she's not afraid to use a word like divagation at the same point as well. She doesn't talk down in any way. She wants the right, she wants the right thing to be there. Well, that was The Moose by Elizabeth Bishop, which was published in the July 15, 1972 issue of the magazine. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) In the November 17... 2014 issue of The New Yorker, we published your poem, Nick Laird, your poem, Feel Free, which you're going to read for us now. Before you do that, do you want to uh, say anything about it? There's not a lot to say about it. It mentions a place called Kragandevsky, which is a wee court tomb between Cookstown, where I'm from, and Omer, just um, a couple of miles outside Cookstown. Craig and Defsky, that's Craig right. And, Defsky, and yeah. then the Belted Galloways, and it's probably best to remind ourselves. So Belted Galloways, a cow that has like a, a sort of belt around it, uh-huh. that's like a wide strip of dock. So Galloway, obviously, place in Scotland, which the Belted Galloways came from. That's right. So it's good to know that, so we don't think it's a Scottish regiment or something. Right. Yeah. One more thing to mention. The Harvey is my son, I mentioned, and the Catherine is my daughter. Yeah. So, Nick Laird, feel free. Feel free. To deal with all the sensational loss, I like to interface with Earth. I like to do this in a number of ways. I like to feel the work I am exerting being changed, the weight of my person refigured. And I like to hang above the ground, thus hammocks, snorkeling, alcohol. I also like the mind to feel a kind of neutral buoyancy, and to that end I set aside a day, a week, Shabbat, to not act. Having ceded independence to the sunset, I will not be shaving, illuminating rooms, or raising the temperature of food. If occasionally I like to feel the leavening of being near a much larger, unnatural tension, I walk off a Sunday through the high fields of blanket bog, saxifrage, a few thin belted galloways rounding Loch Malin to stand by the form of beauty upheld in a scrubby acre at Kregendevsky. What I do duck and enter under a capstone mapped by rival empires of yellow feather moss and powdery white lichen. I like then to stop, crouched, and press my back on a housing of actual rock coldness which lives for a while on the skin and I like when I give you the night feed Harvey, how you're really concentrating on it, fists clenched eyes shut like this is bliss Two. I like a steady disruption I like it when the solid mantle turns to shingle and water rushes up it over and over in love My white noise machine from Argos is set to crashing wave, but I'm not averse to the presence of numerous and minute quanta moving very fast in unison. Occasions when a light wind undulates the ears of wheat or a hessian sack of pearl barley seed is sliced with a pocket knife and paws. I like the way it sounds, pattering on stone, 
I like how the starlings over Monte cohere and separate their bodies into one cyclonic symphony. And I like that the hawk of the mind catches at their purse, pulse, call, arc. I like the excitation passing as a shadow ripple back and how the bag is snatched, rolled slack, straight, falciform, mouthing, bulbing, a pumping heart. I like to interface with millions of coloured pixels depicting attractive people procreating on a screen itself dependent on rare metals mined by mud-grey children who trudge up bamboo scaffolding above a greyish-red lake of belching mud. I like how the furnace burning earth instills in me reflexive gestures of timidity and self-pity and deference as I walk along the kinder surfaces, grass, say, or sand, unable ever to meet with my eyes the gaze of the sun. 3. I can imagine that my first and fifth marriages will be to the same human, a woman, the first marriage working well enough that we decide to try again as soon as it's, you know, mutually convenient. I can see that. I like the fact that we're super-cooled star matter, even if I can't envisage you as anything other than warm and bleating. The thing is, I can be persuaded fairly easily to initiate immune responses by the faked safety signals of national anthems, cleavage, family photographs, country lanes, large-eyed mammals, fireworks, the King James Bible, Nina Simone singing the twelfth of never, cave paintings, coffins, dolphins, dolmens. But I like it also when the fat and pasta of the canvas gets slashed by a tourist with a claw hammer and a glimpse is caught of what you couldn't say. Entanglement I like, spooky action at a distance analogising some little thing including this long glance across the escalators or how you know the song before you switch the station on. When a photon of light meets a half-silvered mirror and splits, one meets the superposition of two, being twinned, and this repeats. Tickling your back, Catherine, to get you to sleep, I like to lie here with my eyes closed and think of my school friends' houses, before choosing one to walk through slowly, room by sunlit room. Thank you very much indeed. I have to say that, uh, as with the, the Bishop poem, you managed to get an extraordinary amount into this rather small chamber. Yeah, it's stuffed, yeah. Well, in a fabulous way, in a wonderful way. Well, that's kind of you. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things in it. I suppose I'm interested now in what, what freight a poem can take. Um, I've been, you know, doing it a while, and I think it, uh, to try and... Not get bored with your own writing. You always want to see what the poem can stand in a way. So you try and feed it as much as possible, and that becomes one of the the ideas behind it. What it can still have and still, in a way, you know, function or you know, take flight or whatever the operative simile is. I was struck again, particularly hearing you read it, as one of the great things about being able to hear a, a poem uh, read aloud, and indeed particularly by the poet through whom it came into the world. And I noticed, I think, for the first time, that element of the structure when at the end of uh, part one of the first section you address Harvey, and I like when I give you the night feed, Harvey, and then at the very end, tickling your back, Catherine, in the end of section three, and the two are there as uh, almost as part of a, I wouldn't 
I'm not sure if one would describe it exactly as the uh, stone structure that we find at Craig and Devsky, mm -hmm. but something along those lines. It's almost dolmen-esque in its structure. Could that be right? Um, that, is, that is right. Each of the three sections finishes with a, a kind of question about sight, the eyes are closed, or the unable ever to meet with my eyes, the gaze of the sun, part two. So there's, there's an idea that they're meant to kind of prop against each other. Very hard to know what you, you're deliberately doing and what you're accidentally doing, but I certainly find when I finished that poem that it, there were little things playing all the way through it. So this idea of superposition, of being things being twinned. and It's meant to be, I suppose, in some ways, like a poem for my ch children and this idea of feeling free, you know, what it, what it is to feel free and how one might achieve it and the difficulties of it. Again, I'm just struck by the way, very much like the Bishop poem, one is drawn into this, um, what feels like a universe. Yeah, I mean, easier to talk about the Bishop than to talk about your own work, uh, for, certainly for me, but I suppose it's meant to capture some idea of being in the world. I, I wanted to try and bring in ideas from science and stuff. One always wonders what one can write that hasn't been able to have been written before. So... You know, when you think of A.R. Ammons, for example, writing about the view of Earth from space, which wasn't a view that was available to, say, George Herbert, just the idea of certain things that we know now from things like entanglement or things about uh, an atom can be in two places at once at the same time. and So new uh, metaphors and new similes that science has given us when we try and... Uh, I'm interested in trying to use those, I suppose, is, is in there somewhere as well. Yes, I mean, I often think about, uh, you know, what would John Donne do with this most uh -huh. recent piece of information about how the world works? I mean, you could imagine him really going to time. Uh, yeah. I want to ask you, if, if it doesn't seem too large a question or too large an answer, what is it that drives you, if indeed you feel driven, to write poems? Well, I think it starts off with reading other people's poems when you're younger and you get a little sort of frisson from them and you think, ooh, how did that happen? What's happening here? And then you start to sort of imitate them and then the next thing, oh, you're doing it all the time. And certainly, obviously, I read you um, when I was at, at school and it was and your work and, and Heaney's work were the sort of two most formative and exciting and inspiring people's work that turned me on to it and that was partly to do with the locale mm -hmm. not just because it was the same all of these places like you were writing about them or whatever else and in this very interesting way so the ability i suppose especially in a place like northern ireland the ability to have other narratives coming in it's you know second thoughts space for that strange worlds and being opened up um in your work, certainly. Once you've got this, it becomes kind of habit-forming. You, you sort of you learn to take everything this way and, and, and retreat into it. So it, be, it starts off as a sort of pleasure, and then it becomes a habit, and then the next thing is you need to do it you know, all the time. I suppose it's a... All drugs begin as fun, and then they, be, <laughs> and then they become less fun. You know, I, I do think that to be able to use a place name like Craig and Devsky unapologetically and not feel that, you know, it's somehow less interesting than Chicago or uh, Kathmandu is actually a wonderful thing. I mean, that, and one of the things that uh, 
many poets now have have learned when they get a sense of a tradition from a particular place, but yeah. also that the notion of the local may really travel. Sure. I mean, we can go back to Kavanagh's epic, and in some ways, he seems to be the daddy of that tradition for for, for all of us. But mm-hmm. but I think almost now we're in danger of it being the other way around. That Kragandevsky is more interesting than Chicago. That you need to be careful not to fetishize the local at the same point. I'm sure that's a real problem. But you know what? If that's the greatest problem we face, we'll be okay. It's definitely not the greatest problem we face. (laughs) Nick Laird, what a delight to uh, talk to you today. Thank you very much indeed for being with us. Thanks, Paul. The Moose by Elizabeth Bishop, as well as Nick Laird's poem, Feel Free, may be found on newyorker.com. Nick Laird's latest book of poems is Go Giants. And Elizabeth Bishop's final collection was Geography Now, you may subscribe to this podcast, the fiction podcast, and indeed the political scene podcast in the iTunes store. And you can hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet edition of the magazine. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, goodbye. The Moose by Elizabeth Bishop was read with permission of Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. The poem is copyright 2011 by the Alice H. Methfessel Trust and appeared in the compilation Poems, copyright 2011 by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and in the digital edition for tablets and smartphones, available at no extra charge in the App Store and on Google Play. The theme music is The Pitnacree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.